0: Welcome to the Art and Science of Success. I'm your host, Jonathan Brown. Now, this 12-part podcast series has been created to help you make the most of the recovery opportunities, however long they last. In the last 12 years, I've worked with some of the world's top leaders, companies and teams to help them create success in highly challenging situations. And in that time, I've got to know some of the world's top practitioners and researchers into the toughest situations we can face. As we work to rebuild our businesses and even our communities, I wanted to offer some free resources and insights that I know help leaders because we use them every day helping our clients to deliver amazing results. So I asked them, what insights and ideas do you have that leaders can apply to help them survive and thrive whatever happens in the next few months or even the next few years? We have to find ways of inspiring our people to become even better and if there was ever a time for you to do truly great work, to truly be your best more often, it's today. So I hope these podcasts will help you in some small way to create even more success for you and for those you care about. Today we're speaking with Fred Luskin. Fred has been a lecturer at Stanford University for over two decades, where he specialised in the research and practice of happiness, and most recently and famously, forgiveness. Our paths crossed over 10 years ago when we were pitching for work in the United States of America. Now I've been an admirer of his work ever since. What's particularly reassuring about Fred's work is his relationship with the medical school at Stanford, because there they apply his ideas and insights to accelerate recovery in patients. Now first, he helped people suffering with heart disease, but following terrific results in this area, it broadened into other spaces. So he's a great guy, and I'll let Fred tell you more.
1: My name is Fred Luskin. I've um, co-created and run the Stanford University Forgiveness Projects now for almost 25 years. I'm also a a lecturer at the Stanford University School of Medicine and helped co-create a program at the Stanford University School of Medicine on wellness education. Um, I've been teaching and researching the value of forgiveness now since the mid nineties. Um, and it, it emerged from a long-standing interest in the interface between um, spiritual practices and health. I've uh, been a meditator for about 40 years and very much interested in the spiritual aspects of life, created a forgiveness intervention that's entirely secular, but have a a feeling holds sense that there is something to the let's say the things we can't see and don't understand that have some impact on our well-being and part of the beginning of the forgiveness project was for that purpose was to help that kind of mid 90s finally a conversation between science and religion so since then, I've been taking this literally secular, psychological way of looking at forgiveness and teaching it all over the world and trying to help people with all sorts of stuff move past their, their hurt or bitterness.
0: Brilliant. I mean, I, I heard a funny anecdote that you told that you also set up the happiness um, class at Stanford. And you had to to run it out of the Department of Pediatrics because no one else would speak to you. (laughs) That's the truth. (laughs) Yeah.
1: So one, one other thing that I might have left out was, I think in 2008, my teaching partner and I were really intrigued by the positive psychology happiness class that was occurring at Harvard. And she and I had had a long interest in, like, let's just not work with what's wrong with people, what's right with people. And my forgiveness project was built on the idea that I was interested in forgiveness, not anger. Like, I'm not an anger researcher, I'm a forgiveness researcher. So she and I decided to try to mimic Harvard's class at Stanford, which, I think Time Magazine had written on the Harvard class in, say, 2005. So we had read that, and and now it's about 2008, and we're trying to get a department to house our class. And we got turned down by everybody. I mean, it's just fascinating. The School of Education didn't think it was educational. Psychology couldn't figure out what it had to do with psychology. HumBio couldn't imagine what it had to do with human biology, sociology, the same. I mean, we, we literally went begging to different departments. It wasn't academic enough. It wasn't specific to their department. And we were, we were getting pretty discouraged when the head of where she worked, she was the, the director of health promotion at Stanford and her boss was the the medical director of the health center at Stanford, which is a far bigger position. And he knew us both. And he said, you guys can't get anybody to to post this for you? And we said, not a all. He said, okay, I'll do it. And he said, what do you mean? He said, well, I have an appointment in the Department of Pediatrics. I'm a pediatrician, even though here I am running the health center. So I'll put the course under my name. And they they can't argue with me, so you guys, the three of us, will go on as co-teachers, and it'll be in the Department of Pediatrics. So, for years, we taught this class—I don't the art and science of happiness—out of the medical school Department of Pediatrics, because nobody else would touch it. Amazing, I know.
0: What is it that makes us happy?
1: It's just a couple of simple things, Jonathan. It's. Having a positive purpose in life, you know, having some reason to get up in the morning besides just your pleasure or like antagonisms or negative motivations, it's having a positive purpose in life. Second, it's establishing, maintaining, developing and healing relationships, the work of relationships And third, it's the ability to savor in your life that which is good. That it's, uh, you know, I've shrunk that to like people, purpose, and savoring, but there's very deep stuff there. And of those three, the most important is relationship. That they figure that between 50 and 70% of your happiness is the quality of your relationships. Purpose is second. And that what rounds that out is the ability to really focus on, save or appreciate those parts of your life that are good. And it requires us to make certain decisions, not to over-focus on things that aren't so good, like complaining or things that go wrong or your endless need to do work or the unending list of responsibilities happier people take breaks from that to savor what is valuable in there. Like, You know, the, the, the classic picture of the really busy person who can't stop rushing around to have dinner. Mm. So they eat standing up or they eat, you know, doing their emails. Now that's efficient, but it, it lacks that quality of savoring the meal, which is a, a central component of a happier life.
0: When I think about the purpose relationships or people, purpose and, and savoring, the whole thing around the appreciation for me is a way in which that that could be the the recovery process, right? Is it the the whole thing around if you're working on purpose, you work, you're surrounded by great people, and then the savoring is your ability to take a breath and and appreciate what you've got, but also to recover and to and to take in the positive, right? Bank the gains. And I know George Valiant on the Harvard project talks about to be in an environment where love is present and be able to metabolize that love and to take that in right and i know there's very sad examples of people who have been surrounded by people who loved them but they didn't feel it they weren't able to metabolize that love and so that 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 appreciation was missing they were doing great work and they were they had effective relationships but that feeling the savoring of of appreciation of gratitude that the low level but just utterly resonant positive emotion was absent in their lives. And they were, they were just this, like this bubble of sadness, really. When I do
1: trainings, one of the, the simplest takeaways or one of the simplest ways to explain so much of this is I try to remind people to learn to say thank you. In order to say thank you, you have to first notice. You know, many of us mm-hmm. are so busy or so preoccupied with ourselves that we don't even see the world out there. Like it's just just such a blur. So in order to to do that, you have to have some attentional focus. You have to recognize the good, and then you have to make a decision that you yourself are gonna respond to it by saying thank you. And that simple practice encapsulates so much of the quality of happiness.
0: yeah, when I'm looking around at, at thinking, well, where, which which way could this go? Coming out of lockdown, and one of the potential positives is if we were to take the appreciation that we felt for for what would be, be described as like the invisible people in our lives, because we've been much more aware of the importance of of the bin man or you know the people the the people cleaning the hospital. Cleaners are much more valued, at least at the moment, right? And even whether it's our health service and, and other people that were taking risks to keep things going, even a supermarket worker. And there was an honoring of that, of that contribution that person made to our lives. And so in that sense, there is a possibility of, a, of that greater connection, isn't there, really, of, of recognizing that we're part of a community.
1: If people do it. In New York, they have a thing, you know, September 11th, when the World Trade Center was attacked. And then September 12th, when everybody banded together, there's a lot of folks that that use that idea of September 12th as, as just a wonderful metaphor for what human beings are capable of, that after an attack on September 11th, on September 12th, people were their better selves. But September 12th went away, and it tends not to last for human beings that they don't tend to maintain appreciation and they don't tend to maintain awareness of others. And so I I would believe that there would need to be some ongoing training, reward, appreciation, something Mm. to trigger that. Otherwise, people tend to do almost anything to go back to whatever unconsciousness they existed in before things opened their eyes.
0: What's your your take on why that is?
1: I mean, there's, you know, a lot of possibilities. A strong one is intellect, just simple intellectual laziness. A second one is habit. A third one is culture. Most cultures don't want really happy people. They want compliant, socially acceptable Kind of tending towards the mean individuals they don't tend to really want happy folks because as Maslow pointed out the more you tend towards self-actualization the more you tend towards thinking for yourself and the more you tend to be asocial not antisocial but asocial and so cultures tend not to want that and and the last piece is the the nervous system's innate negativity bias which is a, a protective mechanism to make sure you spend a lot of your time focusing on what's wrong in order to keep yourself safe
0: mm.
1: and mm-hmm. that negativity bias is very hard to overcome and in fact i don't believe it can be overcome but it can be worked with
0: yeah and this is a this is a way that will our brains seem geared are that the data shows our brains are geared to, to give disproportionate attention to possible threats rather yeah. than potential benefits, just from a simple risk management point of view.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's true.
0: Yeah, and, and unfortunately, and certainly that the press over here and the government have been, have been pressing the pedal around things to be fearful of. Now, just allowing for the fact, let's just say that's well-intentioned, so without, without blaming them for, for doing that, What would you see as a consequence of that of a year of fear that we've that we've certainly had in the UK?
1: I'm gonna say that my my response to that is what they did was necessary but not sufficient. Right. So you have to keep people safe. And and if you don't keep people safe as the government or the let's say the mainstream media, you have failed in your key task right I mean you've just failed yeah so they have to keep people say one of the failures was of of thinking of safety only from a physical sense and and of letting the dissemination be dominated by epidemiologists and not a broader array of thinkers so when you look at it just from a physical sense, locking things down, telling people to wear masks, keeping distance, not to spend too much time with other people. From a simple physical safety factor, those make sense. However, those safety mechanisms create a lack of psychological safety.
0: Hmm.
1: And so while you have a, a really strong, good emphasis on keeping people alive and not ill, I I believe you've intensified their sense of danger and their sense of threat about life itself, and, and you've limited their solutions, which are so based on relationship and savoring. So if they had presented a more nuanced thing of, yes, do these things to keep yourself safe, but recognize that Physical safety does not create psychological safety, and it's only psychological safety is when you actually feel safe. That physical safety is protective, but it's not experienced to safe. And so you can look at that with human beings, ever increasing need for more material possessions. You know, many of us have way more than we need materially, and don't act as if we're safe at all. So external or physical safety does not necessarily translate into psychological safety, and they could have disseminated and focused upon all sorts of things that would have enhanced or at least mitigated some of the psychological distress, which they didn't do because they were dominated by epidemiologists and medical doctors and did not have a broad enough range of thinking to really help people handle devastated change the lockdown and of the pandemic but again i will i will say what i said first it was necessary but not sufficient as opposed to in any way wrong
0: yeah so it was just an incomplete strategy which i guess you know if you look at the the time pressure that everybody was under then it's you know, again, it's like well, you just you know you're smashing the window to get people out of the building, right, or to get them to get them safe. So looking at, at where we are now, if someone doesn't feel psychologically safe, and I think there's a there's been this element of people not feeling safe in their own homes, right, and they're worried about, about contact with other people, and um, and as people transition back to work, then there's worries about being in in an open space with other people, stuff like that. So what could I do as a leader to help myself first of all? And then looking ahead to think, how can I help my people come back into the office based on your research of, of feeling psychologically safe and, and, and having a strong relationship with others?
1: Well, some of psychological safety is inner that we have to practice the conditions that allow us to feel safe, to regulate our own nervous systems there. So part of that is connecting with your purpose. You know, if if you have a decent purpose, you can handle a lot. So Victor Frankl's, you know, you give a, a person a, a why and they'll come up with a how. So that was attempted a little with the lockdown, you know, do it for your neighbor. But a deeper social or personal narrative is necessary. So one of them is purpose and story. Two are I believe that everybody would benefit from some short training in uh, meditation for personal quieting. I'm going to even say, like loving kindness practices. You know, it doesn't have to be the Buddhist loving kindness, but there are all sorts of meditative awarenesses out there about how to build compassion for others, about how to offer forgiveness to others, about how to train generosity towards others the the Buddhists have a practice called you know sympathetic joy where you're taught to feel good about other people's success there are all sorts of inner short-term meditations one can do to make you feel safer in the world and, and and quiet yourself down then there are the very deliberate looking for the way that the world supports us so the vaccine is an incredible thing that one could use for safety, even if you don't fully trust the pharmaceutical companies that maybe will overprofit from these, or maybe it was rushed. The fact that this species could come up in a year with a vaccine and roll it out to like billions of people to Try to eradicate an unknown disease before then is remarkable. Mm. And if you focus on what human beings do right, it becomes a safer place for you to live your life in. If you just focus on what human beings do wrong, you live with a lot of anxiety and fear. Well,
0: do you know, and that, that's some of the research for, with uh, Mike Matthews and his, his colleagues at, at West Point was the disconnect between psychological safety and physical safety. Because when yeah. often, the, and it, people often feel most psychologically safe when they're in the most physical danger, right? Because they're part of a group. And I think what you just said there about focusing on on what we've done right is there's a reaffirmation in some way of, of shared values. I can appreciate the excellence and the dedication of those scientists. And so, in that sense, I'm part of that something bigger that, you know, really coming back to the purpose. But also, it connects with relationship, doesn't it? Because in some way, we've got a much more positive relationship with that scientific endeavor and, and with the with miraculous results that they got from, from, you know, from a six-month trial.
1: You, you know, there's a really simple meditation that I do. If, if you'll give me like 30 seconds, I'll, I'll guide you in it. But I think you can see how simple and necessary these inner safety practices are. So let me just ask you to stop for a moment, take a pause, take a breath and just set the stage for a moment. You know, you can keep your eyes open or closed, but but what I really want you to do is just pause. And then just allow yourself to relax a little bit your shoulders to kind of relax because you wanna not accentuate any tension. And then if you can, slow your breathing down for just a moment, just gently. And you wanna make sure when you inhale, your belly expands. That's just the key psychophysiologic quality. When you inhale, your belly expands. When you exhale, your belly contracts. And then you just wanna ask yourself, in the last like 24 36 hours who has been kind to you you just want to ask that question and you want to look at the last day day and a half of your life and you just want to slow the tape down can you find any moments where anybody was generous patient loving supportive good hearted allowed you to complain, forgave your indiscretions, you want to just look to that. And you'll notice that there's more than you might think. And then you want to pick one, one example of good-heartedness. And from your own heart, you want to say thank you. Just from inside of you right here, thank you, thank you so much. And then that's a a two-minute safety practice because you recognize that you don't live quite as much in a threat-based reality all the time as we think. And if we can focus on our own reaction to goodness, then we realize that some of this experience of safety is up to us, not necessarily the world.
0: That's one simple practice. I absolutely love that. And you know, I was I was just wondering, Fred. Just I, I was coming across one of your podcasts where you talked about your choice of coffee, of one of a potentially nearly infinite number of coffees that you can get from an average Starbucks, with all the different combinations, makes no <laughs> difference to your happiness. But actually, <laughs> living in a world. And being a person who lives in the world, who's fortunate enough to have a coffee shop where there's 40 different varieties of coffee, that's something to, to show appreciation for. And I'm wondering if maybe that's, if the, the whole area around, you know, just appreciation and awareness that you do in, in some of your other works, as we're coming out of lockdown, because I know quite a few people have still not returned to the office. There's, in a few companies I work with, the boss is back, but no one else is. And, and they're, they're, they're gradually staging that recovery is that we could have that awareness again, and we can we can potentially see things anew, right? And in the UK, I, know, I don't know. I mean, in, in California, if you get eternal spring and summer, but the, it's springtime over here, and so there are things in nature to be really appreciative for. And if we were to stop on our way to work, if we're walking there, and, to, and just to appreciate the, the leaves coming out on the trees, or, or or to notice other people that we're back in community again, and things that we did take for granted and i know in you know in a month's time i might be cursing the coffee guy for being slow but right now i can say well, i haven't seen you in months and it's wonderful to see you again and this tasting this coffee it could be you know one of the nicest coffees i ever have because i've not had one for three four months you know from a coffee shop
1: well there is two not issues so much as considerations there one is or i can think of three one is what you're talking about is being willing to see things as new. I mean, that's the whole mindfulness piece that it's not just patterns, it's not just categories, it's not just repetition of the past. It's being open to not knowing. Because when it's new, you don't know what it is. It's new. It's a slightly different moment than it's been. So in order to be open to the new you do have to have an ability to breathe you do probably have to relax your body a little bit so you're not quite as tense because you need to let information in that that's that's the quality of newness it's it's coming in it's not already known that is a wonderful quality that can be practiced i mean that that's It's not just a passive quality. You can practice that. How do I practice seeing things new? You know, how do I practice being available to my life? So that's one. The second is the sense of us versus them. Throughout the whole pandemic, because of the physical safety needs, we've been instructed to see each of us is kind of separate and isolated because the concern has been about protecting our physical integrity. But it doesn't have to be that way. You can, you can situate yourself and and just extend your concern to the people on your block. You know, we're all stuck inside. Work with you know, our treadmill 14 feet from our desk, which is 18 feet from our, you know, bed, which is 28 feet from our kitchen. You know, we're all there together. That creates both safety and empathy and, and relationship. You know, they're, they're, these are ongoing practices. They're not just concepts.
0: Mm.
1: You know, is this new? Is it not new? And and the third is a an outgrowth of that second is that you can wish people well. Like that can be a practice too for both kindness and re-emergence is that you can you can practice working a little bit past our self-centered fear, which is you know, if we're not viciously competitive, then we're not gonna get our share. I remember doing a practice on a webinar about a long time ago when the, the lockdown was just beginning. And I would remind people that you can go to Costco and you can stand in line, you know, and you had to be six feet apart. And, and you can look at the person in front of you by six feet and be afraid of them, you know, and and have your mask super tight. And, You know, be leaning away, so God forbid they cough and turn around, you're gonna be dead. But you can actually sit there and hope they have a nice day. And you can do the same with the person behind you. Like you don't you don't have to be in adversarial relationship with people. Yeah. And so these are practices, they're not, they're not just concepts, they're they're practices that, again, a wider thinking than epidemiologic and viral would have led us to it.
0: I know there's something that I can certainly put a link. I know this is such a great book. And there was a, you were describing the, the tends to relax exercise there, weren't you? And again, it, it could be something. And if someone's feeling tension when they're going to work, being able to get outside, find a bench to sit on and do a tends to relax exercise, that could really help open new information. And I'm thinking, you know, the conversation we had before we started just around people being open to new information and the importance now of coming back together, whatever your opinion was of what's happened is the importance that, that you and I need to get on. And you want the information I've got. So we're both open to to a new view. And so in that sense, we can share our experiences and honor those things. And I love the I love the whole thing that actually, if you're physically tense and emotionally, you know, stressed, then you zone in on just the, the variables that will keep you alive and what you're not open to is newness in a sense of a non-threatening way, such as what's the wondrous nature of you know, the leaves coming on the trees or the flowers in the gardens and stuff.
1: It's very challenging to recognize that some more of our sense of safety and happiness depend on us than just on what happens to us that is a an amount of responsibility that many people find challenging
0: and that's one of the areas in your other book in forgive for good then you talk about that's one of the areas why we build up a resentment is because we're expecting the world to be one way and it isn't it, it is not <laughs> and this year this year it's certainly not been so do you, want to, yeah. do you want to take us through some of your, some of the research that you did there and why? And also, I think that would wonderfully explain why it was that, that your forgiveness research and your work has been so successful literally all around the world. I know you did quite a bit of work in Northern Ireland and in other areas where people have got very good reasons to be angry and resentful, in which case forgiveness is, is even more important and even more valuable. And I know your ideas worked really well there.
1: I think forgiveness is one of those key qualities that we don't pay enough attention to. It's simpler than people think. And it's facilitative of happiness in the way that people think. So you're walking down the street, it's a nice day. You remember somebody that said something not nice to you. All of a sudden, it's not such a nice day anymore. I I don't think we realize how often that spoils our day. The forgiveness idea keeps it from sticking. Yeah, you can have all sorts of thoughts about the way people were unkind or unfair or did wrong or ruined or this, that, or the other thing. And, And many of those thoughts may be true. The problem is when you bring those thoughts to the present, then you hurt the present. And that's a cost that we pay often without thinking. So if we had a bad ex-partner in 2010, you know, it makes some sense to be pretty displeased maybe till 2012, you know, like, hey, I really got the small end of the stick and this was not a good experience and they behaved very badly and blah, blah, blah. But then if you think about it, you realize that, well, 2010 is over and it's 2012. And what do I want to be focusing on in 2012? And how do I want to be interpreting 2010? Those become present-centered choices. Forgiveness means like, yeah, I know they were crappy in 2010, but it's 2012, so let it go. It's like, why would I want to ruin 2012 because they may have harmed me in 2010? And and that's a deep question that I don't think enough human beings ask themselves.
0: Mm. In some form of recovery for quite some time. And I've been to mostly process addiction groups. And there's so many of us, and, and myself included, and this is, um, you know, being a work in progress, is being trapped by the past, thinking that there's some area of, of agency in me being angry with my dad or this okay. person doing me over in a business deal and becoming a millionaire, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, well, it's, I'm the one that's trapped. And it's like, well, how do I free myself for that? And I know in, in your work, is you, you stress that forgiveness is not for the other person. It's for you.
1: But- that's the deep question that Desmond Tutu highlights in: "Without forgiveness, there is no future. That without forgiveness, you're stuck in the past. That that you mistake the past for the present, and so you no longer are creating a future, but what you're doing is relitigating the past and." That's just not how life flourishes. You know, life flourishes by being open to the present and seeing how it is unfolding and what might be the best skills or relationship to bring to that present. Now, it doesn't mean you don't learn from the past. You know, we'd all be dead without that but you want to live at the amount of prejudice that the past brings. So again, that's why Desmond Tutu said, without forgiveness, there is no future because you just keep on living the past. And, and that, is, that is simply not an optimal happiness or life strategy. So you want to look at the kind of stories you tell. You know, do you, do you talk about how your parents limited you because of the way you were raised, as opposed to maybe the challenges of learning better strategies now. Those are two very different stories, one rooted in the past, one rooted in the present. You you, You might want to talk about, I don't know, if somebody lied or mistreated you. In the present, you might want to ask how I, as healthy as possible, live with that, as opposed to what's wrong with them, how do I get back with them, Um, this shows me that life isn't fair, all of those are present-centered ways of trying to relitigate the past, but they don't help you have a better future. The, the the questions that ask about a better future are those current questions about what's the best strategy for now. So mm. you know, if I had very bad experiences and I learned that people were not safe, the 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 best discussion is to practice safety now.
0: Yeah. And, you know, just looking at some of the, the research from well, from military history is that walls as a form of defense are dramatically overrated in that you can never build a wall big enough or wide enough or, you know, because you'll eventually either, you know, best case is you starve to death because there's someone surrounding you walls. The real thing is that, well, first of all, is that what's our mobile is like? And how can we, you know, how can we on the move, can we protect ourselves so we're faster, we're more adaptive? We keep moving. But then the most successful form of defense is to be surrounded by friends.
1: You know, we talked a little before about the difference between psychological safety and physical safety. The truth is there is no complete physical safety at all. It's an impossibility. No matter what precautions you take, you're going to end up dead. And that's just true. You could live your life in a bubble. You could eat organic, you know, healthy homegrown food. You can have a million friends. And at some point you'll end up dead. So physical safety is an impossibility. You do wanna take reasonable steps to make it as likely as possible, but to focus all your attention there is a fool's errand, because it, it simply doesn't happen.
0: If I say psychological safety, and, and I also have psychological connection, is there a difference between those, those two things? Are they the same thing?
1: Well, psychological safety is one of the reasons that forgiveness is so important, because it says that, you know, shitty things happen, and I've learned to cope and my learning to cope gives me greater safety for the future. When I'm not forgiving, I'm saying that I can't cope. But forgiveness is a a form of psychological safety because it says, you know, I can't protect myself from everything, but I can heal from it. Mm. And so instead of being so guarded and defended, I allow more to happen because I have a greater sense of my own healing capacities. That's that's a very powerful way to handle the fact that we're not totally safe in the world. Let me give you another example that may make it more tangible. Like Every single person that you love, we all know this, we're going to have to part from You know, no love lasts forever. So some end in death, some end in divorce, some end in moving, some end in chains, some end in battles. But every single relationship that we're in will end. So we all have to figure out how to deal with that lack of
0: safety. Everybody. It's a lack of permanence. Right, and, that's, yeah, well, and that, you know, but
1: that's the same thing. You know, at some point, you're going to lose it.
0: Yeah. So we
1: all have anxiety. We all bully a little bit to try to force people to behave in the way we want to reduce our anxiety. We all minimize reality. So, like. None of us want to recognize that we and everybody around us is gonna be dead. So we try not to pay attention. Many of us don't want to acknowledge that our loved ones can leave if we misbehave, because if we did, we might not misbehave so much. So we, we play a lot of pretend games But ultimately, there's nothing that we can do to make things permanent, and and I'm going to say safe for us in relationship. Yeah. So one of the ways that many people handle that is by trying to love as best they can, knowing that it may not be enough, but it's the best they can do. But that's a, a positive coping. Other people cope with jealousy stalking threats alcohol there were all sorts of ways to cope with um, danger that are not adaptive
0: no do you know i was i was just thinking about this in in our society this unwillingness to accept impermanence that, that everything everything around us is impermanent including ourselves and there was this so there was a, the the conversation around mortality this year has been very immature, and 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 I speak to older members of my family and they're like, John, come and visit. I don't care about the risk. I'd want to see my grandchildren, my great grandchildren. I'd rather do that and take a risk than than you know what what are you saving me for, you know? And there was a wonderful lady in the in the north of England. It's kind of like it's, it's kind of like Boston, only a few more people, right? In that people are very very you know in your face and I'm maybe in New York I don't know and um, and she said look she said I'm not doing this lockdown anymore I'm 85 87 I'm going to be dead soon said so you know I'm just going to get on with it and so in that sense is this this dialogue around around impermanence but also and 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 getting beyond the sadness that that inevitably brings and the grieving that we need to accept that that you and I you and I will pass but helping us how then can we move and bridge from this is really you know the there's, there's sadness and, and grief coming to let's make the most of it. So because we're only here for a short time, let's cherish every moment rather than curl up in a ball and, and cry. So what what have you found from from people who who do the let's make the most of life and honor our, and really cherish our relationships versus ones who are saying well then to protect myself from pain now I'm not going to get into relationships again.
1: I'm going to say they have better reality testing because they know things are impermanent and they know even good things don't last so they savor them. Mm. And there's something a very precious about recognizing that your children will not be children forever, that your home will not belong to you forever, somebody else will own it. That that you get a chance when you realize things are impermanent to actively appreciate them, not just hold on to them tightly because of fear. And, and, and there's something beautiful about acknowledging that if you're married, this person won't be with you forever, that they may not choose to stay with you, that if it's good right now that's phenomenal. And and it frees us, if we're good and smart, to be kinder, more demonstrative, um, take more risks, to be loving. Those are all the things that come with the positive embracing of impermanence. The second is that core quality of forgiveness, which is I need to forgive the things that hurt me so that I can move on in life. And and, and those those are simultaneous processes. Like at the same time, the good is impermanent. So is the bad. Like all the stuff that happened to us will end. And most of it has ended. And so do we want to free ourselves so that we can embrace the life we have, maybe even just until the next difficulty comes? You know, that that, like you forgive in part because you don't want to make believe that whatever it is that's painful is the last painful thing that's going to come to you because it's not. You just don't wanna be stuck there. Mm. And so when you can let go of the ugliness that you've been clinging to, then you have the opportunity to see the beauty in the world that the clinging to the ugliness obscured. And, And that's a profound opportunity.
0: Uh, I just had a I just had a thought, Fred. Just wh- what you were saying there, because if if I don't forgive someone who's done something that's hurt me, then I am now sentencing myself to re- going over that pain again and again. And so, at some point, responsibility for that, the transmission of that pain to me, has to come to me. In that, it's it's not them anymore that's hurting me. I'm hurting me. And I just what? had a thought, just about about PTSD. Is that the body's Going round in this traumatic circle, and we're just not able to get out of it because physiologically, you're trapped in it, and in somewhere in your body the the pain's there, and until we're able to separate the pain from the event, we can we can't actually process either of them.
1: Well, it's both because if you forgive the PTSD as being a protective mechanism of the body and mind then you free yourself to eliminate it if you can, rather than uh, aligning yourself with its kind of victim status.
0: Mm. Yeah.
1: You know, that a dog that's been beaten ain't going to go running in and jump on anybody's lap. But everybody can hold that dog as, you know, rightfully traumatized by the experience. But you don't want that to be the end of the story. No. It's just a point in the story. And that's that's the freedom that you want, is to be able to go in multiple directions with your stories and your life and not be bound by the the woundedness. it's, It's not that the woundedness disappears. It just becomes one of many things. So you could say that this past year with the coronavirus, it had tremendous damage and it did. A lot of people were harmed by this. And many hundreds of thousands were killed. Many people lost work. People put their lives at risk. I mean, there was real damage. And for those who didn't have those horrors. There was benefit in other ways, and and it's it's never just one dimensional. No. but the the tough part is acknowledging them both. You know, not just to be well. It didn't harm me, so the coronavirus really didn't matter, or it did harm me, so there really was no good that came out of this both of those are incomplete what what's hard is to hold life's fullness like as John kabat refers to as the full catastrophe living that there is tremendous pain and there is tremendous beauty and the risk of not forgiving is that you will you will allow the tremendous pain but block out the tremendous beauty
0: yeah that's beautiful and and i think that you know this this whole thing is that well it's i mean and in the you know the description is this last year it has been and it is you know and i think i guess one of the things we can we can look towards is the amazing power of recovery for, and our ability as human beings to get used to something and so just as we've got used to lockdowns and all this challenge of the last year and everything else within three hopefully 3 to 6 months we'll be getting used to a somewhat, hopefully, a more normal life. And so in that sense, we'll be as as happy as we were before lockdown, just as you are when you get a lottery win or people get legs amputated, and before you know it, they're back to where they were.
1: I don't know about where you are, but here in the San Francisco Bay Area, traffic has been more pleasant than it's been in 30 years, and the air is cleaner. And it is such a pleasure to be out there now so, in the way it wasn't for decades. So, And you don't want to use that to minimize people's suffering. No. What you want to recognize is the world has so much of both. And that's why it's happy people who can savor the good. It's not that they ignore the bad but they savor the good. Those are
0: different qualities. And, and, you know, and I think what it what it also causes me to think about as well is that regardless of what happens externally, it'll still come back to the people that you love and the purpose that you're serving. And and those things are, are there. It's like, okay, so, so it may be the way that we express that purpose changes or the way in which we do relate to people going forward changes. And hopefully it'll change back as close to how it used to be, but preferably better because maybe now we will cherish people more. And if we did more exercises around uh, just appreciation, and I know the the gratitude and stuff, you can say it doesn't last, but then we can also, by the same logic, we can say exercise doesn't last, can't we? We can say, well, I tried that jogging business, um, but it doesn't work because, you know, like I did it once and I can't run a marathon. And yet the the thing that I love about your work is, is that the whole thing about, look, is practice. And, and you, you talk about these duh moments and it's like, look, you know what? This is really straightforward. You know, that, that wonderful bit of research that you, that you did or you uncovered, which was happy people wake up in the morning and say, how can I make my day as happy as possible? Yeah. And so we're on purpose In not just we've got a big purpose, but I want, what do I want today? And we're visualizing success as you can get in, in, in stress-free for good. And it's like, well, actually, this is my intention for today. And I want it to be a good day. I want it to be a better day. And I think really, if we're living in, you know, a wonderful Dale Carnegie of living in daytight compartments, is taking it back to let's have a better day today, you know, and, and just and honoring what everything that happens and being appreciative and honoring relationships and then coming home and relaxing the tense, you know, the attention and then getting back to it tomorrow, you know.
1: And uh, when you come home, say thank you. If there, that I don't mean you have to tell everybody every four seconds and say thank you, but inside here, you wanna you wanna remember to say thank you. If that if there's anything that is so transformative, it's to not take it for granted, to not be entitled, but to be able to say thank you. Hmm. so if somebody cooks for you say thank you if somebody does your laundry say thank you if your kids put away their clothes say thank you like it's it's an attitude and and that allows us because of the negativity bias it's the only way that we can see life clearly otherwise we are so skewed to the negative and wrong so often that we have to literally add all of this appreciation and thank you and noticing beauty to have a chance at seeing life the way it is.
0: Mm. And there's, there's good and there's, you know, there's bads in, in every situation. Yeah. Do you know, and, and I, I just think that where I'm from in, in the UK is that we're not, we're not known for expressing emotion. And so even if someone was, was hesitant about expressing emotion, just when they, you know, they get home and just as they're going through the door, just to pause to themselves and take a breath and just acknowledge the fortune that you've got to have someone to come home to. Or to have, you know, you got two, like for me, you've got two healthy kids. And so in that sense, and allow it and, and you know, to the valiant of them to metabolize that love. And as you were saying, to feel it, to, to savor that positive feeling.
1: And compliment somebody sometimes and praise what they do and um, let them know you notice their good quality. Those are all such simple kind of hacks to change relationships so much.
0: I did some major, my my dad passed away a few years ago, and I did some major forgiveness work around that relationship, which wasn't, it wasn't how I, you know, how he'd want it to be. After that, I, a, I, was, I was doing you know heart math, right? So I was doing heart math about five, six hours a day, right? It was just really full-on stuff. And sometimes I would just I'd just start crying for no conscious reason, but it would be those really those healing tears that you that you have, right? And it was just and I was talking to my wife one day. She said, "What? Are you okay?" I said, "Yeah, yeah, I'm just driving along in like the 101." And I'm just crying, like just tears, tears coming out of my face. And it's like, I didn't feel sad. The tears were come, was absolutely streaming. And as there is, after that, there was much more openness and an ability to feel positive. And I just wondered, is there something, is there something mentally? Is there anything on, you know, in the MRI scans that, we've, that we're doing now, on, or the fMRI, just to, just to see that there's something in the brain that locks up where anger or resentment sits? Or is it more of a metaphorical, it's over our heart, so we're just not paying attention to it, we're just not allowing it to come in?
1: Nobody knows yet the relative role of decision, choice, whether cognitive comes before affective. These are all not answered questions. You do the practice that's easiest for you. So some people do better with feeling. You know, they're just feeling people. So they practice or look for things to feel positive about. Other people are better with cognitive things. So they look for ways to change their thinking. Some people are better behaviorally. So they look for things to do. Other people like to make choices. Other people want habits. There's no one thing. Mm. There's no formula for human beings. But somewhere, a human being has to make a choice about what their basic core orientation is to life. And what they found, what you quoted, was the happiest people in the world, they made a choice somewhere that they wanna be happy. And that choice goes downstream and influences so many other decisions. Others of us make a choice that we wanna be rich or successful or never criticized or right. You know, we, we make all sorts of basic decisions and then so many other decisions flow from those basic decisions. I think one of the crucial basic decisions should be some aspect of either affection for oneself, like I'm gonna make a basic decision that I'm gonna treat myself decently, or some desire to basically have a good life or a basic desire to contribute some positivity to the world. But we have to somewhere Choose something, and you know what you chose by how you act. You know, by what your your orientation is. It's, it's no secret. You, if you're arguing with people all the time, you chose being right. You know, it's, like, it, it, it's. You know what I'm saying? It's like it's not rocket science. Jonathan, I enjoy chatting with you. It would have been nice if 10 years ago we could have said hello when we were both doing that thing, but I'm glad we got a chance to say hello today.
0: Me too, mate. Me too. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for your time, Fred. This has been the Art and Science of Success. I'm Jonathan Brown. If you'd like to learn more about the topics we discussed today, be sure to visit alppartners.com, where you'll find the show notes and other resources. And if you join the community there, you'll get access to even more battle-tested ideas to help you create success for yourself and your organization and you can also arrange a free call to explore how we can help you accelerate learning and performance in your organization and if you enjoyed the show be sure to subscribe and if you have a minute pop over to apple podcasts or spotify to give us a positive rating thank you for listening